as we prepare to study Isaac and Rebekah. Of course, before we do any study of God's Word, what do we need to do first? Pray. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for so many things, for life at all. Thank you for the freedom to worship you as your Word dictates. And thank you for this location. You give us warmth and light, and you give us the companionship of not only each other, but the Holy Spirit and angels as well. And now as we turn our attention to our study of your word, we would claim the promise that you will lead us into all truth as we seek with an earnest heart. So let your truth be seen today and application be made by the Holy Spirit in our lives. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, as we mentioned, was the great uh, culmination, that literal mountaintop experience where Abraham was willing to lay down Isaac if the Lord so requested. And the Lord said, now I know that you can be trusted. Genesis chapter 23 records, among other things, the story of the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And now we find in Genesis chapter 22 exactly what verse 1 tells us there, that Abraham was now, what is the condition he's in? Old. Now Abraham was old, and we're in Genesis 24 and verse 1, well advanced in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. His wife has passed away. He was 75 when he started off on this journey. He was 100 years old whenever Isaac was born. And we find from the spirit of prophecy that at this point, Isaac is now 40 years old. So this is not the young, adventuresome Abraham. This is more of a reflective on life, looking back and looking, in fact, towards the future, not for himself, but for his descendants. Namely, his promised son, Isaac. And we see in verse 2, So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Basically, what we see is Abraham did not want Isaac marrying a local girl. Now, if you recall, the Lord had drawn Abraham and his household out of the land where he was brought up, of Earl of the Chaldees, because of the ever-growing idolatry that was seen there. And he was headed to the promised land of Canaan, but at this point there were still Canaanites inhabiting it. And so he was kind of occupying this no-man's land of paganism and heathenism. And he didn't want his son taking a wife from among those heathen people, but he didn't want him going back and living at home either, so he sends his servant to the household from which he came to find a good woman and bring her back to Isaac so Isaac can keep going forward to the promised land. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 171, we read the following, and he gives us an insight into Isaac's character. Now, before we even go there, we know the type of young man that Isaac is at least in part because just two chapters ago, which was some 20 years back at this point, but he was willing to trust his father and lay down his life at his dad's command because it was the word of the Lord. He was a good young man. He was growing up solid in the Lord. But apparently there was still a lurking danger, and it's brought out in Patriarchs and Prophets 171. Abraham's habitual faith in God and submission to his will were reflected in the character of Isaac. But the young man's, 
By the way, I love that he's 40 years old and she's still calling him a young man. Amen. But the young man's affections were strong. He was very loving. He was very passionate. He was very interested in love and having relationships. That's good. And he was gentle and yielding in disposition. Now, that sounds good. Strong affections, gentle and yielding. That sounds meek and mild. But the problem that could arise is he could fall into a loving, affection, intimate relationship with someone who is not of his faith, and that yielding disposition would get run over. And Abraham saw a danger coming for his son Isaac. Watch this now. If united with one who did not fear God, he would be in danger of sacrificing principle for the sake of harmony. In the mind of Abraham, the choice of a wife for his son was a matter of grave importance. He was anxious to have him marry one who would not lead him from God. He saw the gentleness of his son, and while that's a good thing, he said, in the wrong context, this could be dangerous. By the way, the same concern should be on the heart of every Christian, especially parents. Go over to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul's counsel to the church of Corinth is still valid today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We read this very clear instruction. Starting with verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be, and you can probably fill in the blanks, do not be what? Unequally yoked. Together with whom? Unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This concept that a believer yoking with an unbeliever could lead to disastrous results is not just a maybe happenstance. It seems to be the clear concern in the Old and New Testament that even though you seem and you feel confident and strong in the faith, you don't understand that the difficulty that can arise and the influence of being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. In fact, one of the very earliest stories in the Bible gives us a picture of this. Go back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. We've already studied this, but we're going to take it in a little bit different light. Genesis chapter 3, The story of the temptation and fall of humanity into sin. And of course, there were two parties there. There was Adam and Eve, but Eve was the one deceived. She was beguiled by the serpent. And we read in verse 6 her decision from that point of deception. She says here, uh, it says here in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, those are all the lines of argument that Satan had used to get her to eat of the tree, She took of its fruit and ate. But now look at the next line. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, the conversation that goes before this is just the serpent and the woman. Adam, apparently, was not part of that conversation. 
Though he was in the garden with her, he was not part of that deception. So when she ate, she had been beguiled and deceived and led down this primrose path. But when she comes to Adam, he clearly knows the difference between right and wrong. He sees that is forbidden fruit. And here's the command of God. Here's what my wife says and here's what the Lord says. What should I do? Now commenting on this, earlier in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, we find this statement. It's on page 56. Adam had enjoyed the companionship of God and of of holy angels. He had looked upon the glory of the Creator. He understood the high destiny open to the human race should they remain faithful to God. Yet... All these blessings were lost sight of in the fear of losing that one gift, which in his eyes outvalued every other. Love, gratitude, loyalty to the Creator, all were overborne by love to Eve. She was a part of himself, and he could not endure the thought of separation. The idea that if I stay faithful to the Lord, it's going to automatically cause me to be separated from that thing that I really, really want. He couldn't bear it. And we know the sad results. It's written right there in Scripture. In fact, still in Genesis chapter 3, now go down to verse 12. His reasoning why he ate is directly related to this influence. It says in verse 12, Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Now, that's a fact, but is it a good excuse? No. And then look at the Lord's comment in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of whom? Does that mean you should never listen to your wives? Come on now. (laughs) Of course not. But in this regard, you had a choice between following my way and my commands that went this way and her desires and her commands that went this way and you chose to listen to her over me. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And you can continue to read. The point is simply this. What Abraham realized then, perhaps from the experience of Adam that he was understanding, or maybe he just saw it in his own son, or maybe he just had common sense to realize this doesn't work, but with very, very, very few exceptions, dating is not an effective form of evangelism. I'll say it again with excruciatingly rare exception, dating is not an effective form of evangelism. Now, we might think that way. It's very tempting to look around and say, like, oh, now this is what I want, and you know what? I can make it work. I can make this happen. I can change them. Or, more piously, the Lord will change them and make them fit with me right where I am. And, or maybe if we get married, I can... Let me tell you, friends, there's a simple premise found in Amos chapter 3 and verse 3. It's one sentence, one rhetorical question that should stick in our minds as we consider all of our associations, especially those most intimate, those family, those marital bonds. It simply says this, can two walk together unless they be agreed? 
If you set your course on a, thus saith the Lord, as a guide to life, and whatever the Lord's will is, that's what's going to be my destination. That's where I'm headed. Yet you try to bridge yourself together with someone who isn't aiming for the same thing. If you're aiming for two different points on the horizon, it shouldn't be surprising when the paths diverge. And they don't line up. And let me tell you this. Small things when you're just starting dating, small differences, become big things in marriage and become massive things when you become parents. Think about it. Every nuts and bolts, tiny thing, from the biggest thing in life to the smallest thing in the world, becomes something you're going to have to face together if you commit to one another. For instance, let's just take food and drink. Let's say that you, as a, as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, believe that you should not eat unclean meats and you should not have alcohol in your life, but this other person, they're not a fall-down drunk or anything like that. They're not horrible, but they, you know, they're not convicted in the same way and they might have... Well, on the occasion you get together, you live in separate houses, you live in different apartments, you only see each other on occasion, you kind of fudge it and kind of get by and blur the difference and kind of wink at it. But then when you get married, you have to share a refrigerator and a budget and a wallet and things that, am I going to spend my money? Are we going to, no, no, it's not what I'm going to do and you're going to do. Are we going to do this? What are we going to cook? What are we going to get to eat? Just the smallest things that used to be just, oh, cute little peccadillas that were differences. Now they're part of our life. Then when you have children, you have to teach them something by word and example. And what will it be? Used to kind of get away with it, then it became a headache, now it's a nightmare. Think about that. I'm not just talking about food and drink now. Think about how you spend your money. Is our household going to be faithful in tithes and generous in offerings? Are we going to save up for Christian education? Are we going to give to missions? Are we going to, what is our pocketbook going to be? Think about your time. Are we going to set aside 24 hours as the Lord has commanded from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday to keep the seventh day holy? Will we faithfully attend prayer meeting and other activities of the church? Will we do outreach work? Will we do mission? What will we do with our time now that it is our time and not my time and your time? What will we do with our entertainment? Issues of music and movies and television and internet and all kinds of things. What about the big issues of what happens when grandpa dies? Is he in heaven? Is he in the ground? Is he somewhere else? What are you going to teach them? Little things dating become big things in marriage and massive things in parenting. Abraham sees this for Isaac. He says, I need to get ahead of this. Adventist Home, page 66, we read, and this is just one of so many examples of these types of cautions. It is a dangerous thing to form a worldly alliance. Satan well knows that the hour that witnesses the marriage of many young men and women closes the history of their religious experience and usefulness. They are lost to Christ. Now listen, they may for a time make an effort to live a Christian life, but all their strivings are made against a steady influence in the opposite direction. Once it was a privilege and joy to them to speak of their faith and hope, but they become unwilling to mention the subject 
knowing that the one with whom they have linked their destiny takes no interest in it. As a result, faith in the precious truth dies out of the heart, and Satan insidiously weaves about them a web of skepticism. It's not a pretty picture. And Abraham saw the potential of this for Isaac. He said, we're going to get proactive. Now, what do we know about Isaac? Well, first of all, we know that obviously he's unmarried. He's apparently patient in this. He's also very trusting. He was willing to lay down. In fact, two chapters ago, he was willing to lay down his life on the altar of sacrifice and trust his father. Now he's willing to trust his father to pick him a wife at the altar of matrimony. And I don't know if I have that relationship with my father. Now, commenting on this, page 171, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. In ancient times, marriage engagements were generally made by the parents. And this was the custom among those who worshipped God. None were required to marry those to whom they could not uh, marry those whom they could not love, but in the bestowal of their affections, the youth were guided by the judgment of the experienced God-fearing parents. Isaac, trusting to his father's wisdom and affection, was satisfied to commit to them to, to commit the matter to him, believing also that God Himself would direct in the choice made. Now, I, I'm guessing that you and I are pretty close on this one. In our um, Western culture and modern society, it can be easy to ridicule even the notion of an arranged marriage. That's so backwards. That's so, ugh. We have it much better now. But I'm guessing also that you could agree with me that the way that we have now typically done dating and marriage has not necessarily led to the most stellar track record of success. That perhaps they were on to something. Perhaps God's ideal is right there in Genesis. That parents and children should have such a close communion, such a close intimate relationship, that they could literally trust them with the choice of their spouse. I wouldn't trust my parents to choose my clothes, right? And when I first came across that statement when I was a teenager, I said, "Mm." but imagine what would, long before you start looking for a mate, you've got to shore up that relationship with your parents if this is to be the thing. There needs to be a family bond where their interests and associations and, their, and the affections are so well known and so clearly understood by the parents for the children and vice versa that there's a trusting bond that says, you know what, mom and dad, I might mess this up. I trust your age and experience. Go find me someone. It's an indictment not only to how we date but how we live in our homes with our own parents that we need to develop more of this type of trusting relationship. Let's go to Genesis 24 and look at the story very closely. How does it work out? Genesis 24. And we pick it up again at verse 5. He's commanded his servant to go out, and verse 5 says, And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Notice that both parties have to be willing to accept this, but it's an arranged marriage. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? And we've already talked about that. Abraham says, No, 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 he doesn't go back. If she isn't willing to come here, then that's not the right one, basically. Now let's skip down to verse 10. So the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, 
for all his master's goods were in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. There's so many, I can't think of very few more chapters, uh, very few chapters that have more direct application to our lives today than Genesis 24. First of all, where does this servant of Abraham go to find a woman? To the well, where the women typically go. Now, what women would go there? Hardworking, industrious, faithful women. Don't go to a club or a bar and expect to bring home a Christian. That's all we need to say about that. But he's going out where the ladies would come to do their work and draw their water. And it says in verse 12, Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. The very first thing he does is dedicate the process that he's about to go into to prayer. Lord, I'm at the right place, but I still want your leading. Verse 13, Behold, I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Please note that what he's looking for is not mere courtesy, but genuine character. If someone comes up to you and says, may I have a drink of water, and you just give them the drink of water, have you really done anything great? No, you just haven't been rude. But old-fashioned not rude was not the standard Abraham was looking for, Abraham's servant. He says, I don't want her just to comply with the minimum. I want her to go the extra mile to reveal a largeness of heart, a, a trueness of spirit that would go far beyond what's expected. Beyond mere courtesy, he's looking for true character. By the way, it doesn't say, Lord, I'm coming to you in this place. Here's all these good women. Now show me the prettiest one. Nothing wrong with pretty, by the way. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Apparently, Rebecca was beautiful. But the highest priority in his mind was not outward beauty, but inward character. Notice this now. Uh, Again, Patriots and Prophets 172. It was a time of anxious thought for him, speaking of the servant who's on this important task. Important results, not only to his master's household, but to, the, but to future generations might follow from the choice he made. Think about this. When you're choosing a spouse, you're not choosing for just that person. You're choosing for their children and their children's children and the entire direction, the whole trajectory of the family line. He didn't want to mess this up. He wanted to look for the right things, and he wanted the Lord's guidance might flow from the choice he had made, and he was to choose wisely. And how was he to choose wisely among entire strangers? How do you sort out when a whole crowd of people come around? Imagine if it's just a certain time of day and all the women come here, and it's not just one or two, but you have a whole crowd of like 30 women coming towards you. Uh, <laughs> just like, I'm going to go by height, I'm going to go by hair color, I'm going to go by this. What is my criteria? And before he gets in the situation, he lets his criteria be established. So he can't be swayed by whatever might happen along. He's going to know, here's what I'm looking for, and I'm not going to be deterred from this. Remembering the words of Abraham that God would send his angel with him, he prayed earnestly for positive guidance. In the family of his master, he was accustomed to the constant exercises of kindness and hospitality. 
And he now asked that an act act of courtesy might uh, indicate the maiden whom God had chosen. I'm going to throw this out there, and I'm going to look for the one who's the most courteous, the most kind, the most... He's looking for character. And of course, that's exactly what happened. As we go down back in the text, verse 15, and it happened, before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold. Amen. A virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. Notice what his request is. He says, Please let me drink how much water? A little water. He's like, I just need a little bit just for me. But he already told you, what is he looking for? A whole lot for his camels. But he sets off the test. And notice what she does. Verse 18, so she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now, I have never in my life had a pet camel. I'm guessing you haven't either, but you've probably seen one at the zoo or, you know, notice they're, they're huge and, and they're kind of known for something. Camels are used in those deserts for one specific reason, because they're like, they hoard water, yes? They're like tankers going across the desert there, and how many did you have with them? Ten. So here's this guy who said, may I have a sip? She says, sure, and line up all your camels, and I'll start filling water. And she says, I'm going to go until they've all drunk their fill. Not only is that courteous, but man, you've got to be fit, <laughs> And he's watching. Notice what the text says. So back, back to verse uh, 19 again. And when she had finished giving me a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. What's the reaction of the man? Verse 21. And the man, wondering at her. Whoa. That is the best character I've seen in a long time remained silent so as to know whether the Lord has made his journey prosperous or not. Even in light of this, he's still keeping a prayerful attitude and thinking very clearly, trying to be as objective as possible, is this the right choice? And of course it is. The rest of the story unfolds. You can see there in verse 22, So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? Notice he gives, and by the way, the jewelry in this instance is weighted. It's a a monetary thing. There's a great little book. I brought it with me if someone likes to see. It's called Jewelry in the Bible, and it gives a great explanation of what's going on here. But basically, he pays for this gratuity and says, Beyond bus, I want to pay you for your good deed who's your father? Can I go stay with him? I think that he and I need to have a conversation. Now, he's setting up the next thing, and he goes to the house, and the rest of the chapter unfolds as he retells the story to her family. And of course, they give their consent, and she gives her consent. And she decides to come and be the wife of Isaac. Which brings us back to Isaac. Let's go now 
to chapter 24, verse 62. Well, we'll start with 61. It's more, a little bit more poetic. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. It's kind of fun that she was inadvertently fueling up the very carriage that would take her back to her husband. She was giving those camels water. But now in verse 62, we go back to Isaac. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roy, for he dwelt in the south. The implication being that he dwelt in a different place than his father, Abraham. And I would hope so. He's 40 years old. By the way, Ladies, when you're looking for a man, and it's not just men looking for women, look for some things in reverse. You should look for some independence from their family. You should look for some stability and security and some sure-footedness as you go forward. And Isaac went out, look what he's doing here. And Isaac went out to what? Meditate in the field. He's a man of what? Prayer. So while Abraham is praying, and the servant, likely Eliezer, is praying, now Isaac is praying that the Lord will lead in this. He's a man of industry, of independence, and a man of prayer. Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. Now we'll pause right here. Do you think that she had some questions about who Isaac was en route to meet him? I'm sure of it. I'm guessing the servant has done a lot of filling in the blanks and explaining, now who is this guy? What's he like? So she's learning all about this man that she hasn't met yet through the you know, Abraham servant. And in return, notice what happens. Verse 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So before they meet, the servant's like, you stay here. I'm going to go talk to Isaac now. And so they get all the pertinent information, all the story, all the background. And so they know, they know of each other very thoroughly before they ever meet each other. It's fascinating. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. One of the most beautiful things about that, and he loved her. It doesn't say, and he tolerated her. And he, you know, reluctantly accepted the Lord's will in choosing a good wife. No. She was an extension of him. I'm guessing it was very, aha, this is now flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, she taken out of me. But the only way that can happen is if the father and son, that parent-child relationship on Isaac's part was that solid. And the same thing is true on hers, and that the whole process was led by the Lord, and they were focused on the right things. And when they came together, ah, we fit. Praise the Lord. Let me tell you something. Isaac was a wealthy young man. He was promised to be the head of this great household for generations to come. The world would be blessed through him. And as time goes through his 20s and then 30s and now he's 40, do you think there was ever a temptation 
to kind of, you know, cut a corner and compromise on something that would not necessarily be the Lord's will. Absolutely. But apparently he was patient, he trusted the Lord, and the Lord blessed his faithfulness. Now, I wish that there were time today. There just simply isn't. It's maybe some other testimony, Sabbath. I'll share with you the story of how Emily and I got together. But I can tell you, it is a beautiful, wonderful thing, and it is only by the grace of God that it occurred. It is not due to my ingenuity and greatness and my suave. Even, of course, I'm ingenuity and greatness. Of course, suave. Uh, <clears throat> but I can tell you, for both of us, there was great temptation to settle for that which would be less than ideal. Not that those other people were bad, but it just wasn't the right fit for what the Lord had in mind. And there's a temptation to be impetuous, to be impatient, and to jump the gun, to take matters into your own hand. But apparently Isaac did not do that. And when they finally got together, he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Friends, of course, this is most applicable to those who are choosing a lifelong partner, spouse going forward. But this also has great implication for our own personal associations within our family and our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors. Who do we choose to let influence our lives? Do we make godly decisions on those everyday associations or we just kind of strike out on our own and then deal with the heartache that comes after? Apparently, the bind that's supposed to tie us together is the love of Christ and his word and faithfulness to that. And then when two walk together, they can be agreed. It is my prayer that as those of you who are looking for a mate consider these things, that you'll do so prayerfully, that you'll take your time, that you'll ask the right questions, and you'll be walking along the same path so that when you come together, you can truly love each other instead of just merely tolerating each other, that you can be something beautiful for the Lord. And parents, even of the younger children, Speaking to myself here, get to know your children. Help form their character so they will make right choices and they will trust you to be part of that decision-making process. We need to see in this world a rebuke to the morality that's tearing apart this, this world. And by the grace of God, show families and individuals who put God first and demonstrate that that is the most loving, that's the happiest, that's the most joyous you can be is when you don't trust self, but you trust Christ instead of self. We need to have strong individuals who come from strong families who make strong marriages, and the Lord will be honored. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.